Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the coronavirus pandemic in Africa with Dr. Stephanie Salyer of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She was part of a team from the Africa CDC that recently published an article in The Lancet on the first and second waves of the COVID-19 pandemic in Africa. Dr. Salyer is a technical advisor to Africa CDC's Division of Surveillance and Disease Intelligence. She has a doctorate in veterinary medicine and a master's degree in public health from the University of Wisconsin at Madison focusing her research on zoonotic, that is, uh, animal-to-human diseases at the animal-human interface, such as avian influenza. Prior to joining Africa CDC, Dr. Salyer worked for over six years as a veterinary epidemiologist in the American CDC's Center for Global Health. Most recently, Dr. Salyer has been fully engaged in Africa CDC's continental COVID-19 response activities. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Stephanie Salyer. Thanks so much for for having me. It's a great pleasure to be be here. Great. Thanks so much. It's great to have you. So let's start with your article in The Lancet, which got my attention, uh, which is about, the, as I said, the title tells the story. It's about the first and second waves of the coronavirus in Africa. Can you tell us you know, what you found in that article? Sure, absolutely. Um, and maybe a little bit before that, if you're OK with it, um, just to give your listeners a bit of background. Sure. Um, I just. Okay. <laughs> um, I just wanted to tell you a bit about the data that we used um, for the analysis and the, and the team that um, generates this. So we have a team of about six um, epidemiology analysts um, that do event-based surveillance um, at Africa CDC. 
And so this team monitors uh, media and official sources for COVID-19 epi data, testing, variant, vaccine-related information. Um, and so we do verify all of these sources with both our regional collaborating centers as well as member states before we put them into our database. Um, but we actually use this data to produce situational awareness reports uh, for our member states and partners on a twice daily basis. So something, <laughs> something we've been doing since the beginning, um, and that's what we pulled from to, to do the analysis for this, uh, for this study. Um, so yeah, so to share some of the um, key findings, I think, you know, one of the big ones, we, we did the analysis from the 14th of February last year when the first case was reported um, to the 31st of December. Um, and at that point, there were about 3 million COVID cases and more than 65,000 deaths that were reported from Africa. Um, just as a quick update, now we're currently reporting about 4.6 million COVID cases and 125,000 deaths. Um, so this only really accounts for about 3% of the total cases and 4% of the total deaths that have been reported globally. So really touches on your point about you know, not really seeing a lot um, on the African continent compared to what's being reported globally. Um, but I think one of the second points um, is that, you know, even though these percentages are low, when you look at a, at a subcontinental level, when you look at the member state level, um, there were a number of member states that did report very, um, you know, incidences that were very similar to what were other countries were reporting. Um, for instance, Cabo Verde, South Africa, Libya, and Morocco. Um, I think one other piece to mention, um, which is in the title, uh, that that the continent is, you know, experiencing a more severe second wave. Um, and daily infections at the continental level were approximately about 30% higher during the rise of the second wave um, as compared to the peak of the first. Uh, to date now, I actually looked last week at our last epi week, and this trend is continuing. About uh, 52 member states, so that's about 95% of, of the countries on the continent have experienced a second wave, and about 10 have actually experienced a third wave. Um, for those that have experienced a second wave, 73% have had a higher weekly incidence during their second wave when you compare it to their first. And um, all of those that have experienced a third wave have had a higher weekly incidence um, for that wave when compared to their second. Um, a couple reasons why this is, uh, you know, there's early successes. Many African, almost the majority of African countries rapidly responded during their first waves early, early on um, in implementing stringent um, public health measures to limit transmission. But we saw that a lot of those measures were reduced and also adherence to those measures were reduced during the time around the second wave, as well as now that there's more circulation of these um, transmissible, more transmissible and deadly variants um, on the continent. Um, of note, currently, there are three variants of concern that are currently circulating which is the B117, which uh, originated um, in the UK, the B1351, which was originally reported from South Africa, and now the B1617, which was uh, originally reported in India. So there's 24 countries that are reporting the B117, 24 countries that are reporting the B1351, 
15351, and now there's seven countries that are reporting the B1617. Um, and I don't know if you want a little bit on the, the PHSM, but we have a, a recent report that came out from the PERC partnership, which is the Partnership for Evidence-Based COVID Response, which does give further evidence that there's decreased public support for and adherence to measures that are restricting social gatherings and mobility. So lots of reasons for why we're seeing this increase um, in, in severity in these subsequent I see. Thank you. I mean, you've raised a lot of different issues. Uh, one of them has to do with uh, the variation across Africa. I mean, Africa is a big and diverse place with lots of different kinds of capacities and, and histories. Um, and you're saying there's some, you know, variation across those countries, which is hardly surprising. Um, you know, I wonder... I mean, one of the reasons you said there was relative success in some of those countries had to do with early and strict kind of responses by the governments to what happened. Um, can you sort of generalize that um, that point to say that that's kind of one of the major reasons that countries that do well actually do so? I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out for myself, you know, which countries really have done better. And, and often it seems to me it's very difficult to say, you know, and of course it changes over time. So it's, it's very difficult to say what measures really have worked other, I think, than, you know, getting people to wear masks and, and keep social distance. Those two things seem to be more or less universally effective. But otherwise, lockdowns, school closures, all these things, you know, vary a lot uh, across different places and, you know, vary in terms of their uh, effectiveness and success. So I wonder if you could comment on how that's looking in Africa. Um, so with regard to which measures are, are more effective over others, um, yeah, I think that analysis is still left to be, to be said. Um, there's so much going on. <laughs> in each of these countries. And I think, you know, you, you really need to have um, really or, sorry, accurate uh, data to, to really say, you know, are you capturing all the cases um, to be able to say this measure is, is effectively doing this or this or this. Um, but I would say even to the point that I made about the decreased public support for um, those, those measures restricting, uh, restricting social gathering and mobility, um, comparatively, since the there was an opinion poll that was done in August and an opinion poll that was done in February, there's even a slight decrease in things like washing hands and physical distancing. Um, and there of the 19 countries that um, did this opinion poll, 10 of them actually showed a, a decrease in wearing of, of face masks. So I think even some of those personal measures are, are also decreasing too, which are the ones I think most most of us think are, are the most effective. Um, so hopefully that that helps <laughs> to that point. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know there's still that thought too that uh, the majority of the continent is much younger than than you know other other continents. So you could presume that, that that could be one of the reasons why less severe cases have been seen, um, too. But, um, but I think it's interesting to note that, you know, the continental case fatality ratio has actually remained above 2 percent 
for the duration of the pandemic. And this has actually steadily increased from 2.4 to 2.7 since December of 2020. Um, and currently about 21 member states are reporting higher case fatality ratios than the global average of 2.1. Um, and this could be real, right? These elevated case fatality ratios could represent that there is a higher mortality um, than, than what they're seeing globally, but it could also represent that there's a need for more testing capacity to really capture all the cases. So it could be an artifact of that. Maybe, maybe you could explain just quickly for those who may not be as on top of some of these concepts exactly what the case fatality ratio is or the case fatality rate and um, you know how it compares, uh, how Africa compares in this regard to what's going on elsewhere. I mean, India for, for at the moment is getting, of course, all the attention. It's a huge country. Many people are getting sick. Many people are dying. Uh, but you know, how does that compare to Africa, which is uh, you know the fastest growing continent uh, on the planet, right? In, in population terms. Um, so case fatality ratio. It's it's basically the proportion of of deaths to cases. Um, so, you know, you kind of estimate like of the proportion of cases, how many could could die or are dying and what's what's currently being seen. Um, so I know that there was a paper and I can't think of it you know, now, but there was a paper that originally came out um, from China early, early on that estimated that the probably the true case fatality ratio um, or mortality rate was less than one percent. Um, and I need to go dig that up. But I mean, that kind of gives you a bit of a proxy that. You know, there are a lot of asymptomatic infections um, that are not being captured in that in that ratio. Um, and so it kind of gives you a bit of a proxy that if that true um, mortality rate or case fatality rate is less than a percent, then, you know, what is this all? What are the what is this? number over <laughs> to attributable to. And so a lot of times we, we use this as a proxy to say like, okay, you know, it, are there more deaths um, that are being reported over a period of time? Um, but you can also use it as a way to look at your testing and if your testing capacity is ac ac accurate. Um, but there are also other measures that you look at for testing as well, um, which could be the percent positivity as well as a test per case ratio. Um, and WHO um, came up with an adequate range. So the test per case ratio is the number of tests that need to be conducted um, per case per um, case that's diagnostically um, confirmed um, to be able to adequately capture all of the, of the cases that you're assuming are circulating. And so the range that they picked was between 10 and 30. Um, and so if we look currently at what's being reported on the continent, um, at the continental level, the test per case ratio is at about 9.7, which is, is less than that baseline of 10. So, um, so currently at a continental level, the, the, we're not doing enough testing as we should be. And if you look at the member state level, um, about 20 countries, so about a third of the continent is reporting a cumulative test per case ratio less than 10. So really indicating that there is poor testing capacity. And I, I think you asked another question too, so I want to get to that one. 
now I forget. Now I've forgotten. <laughs> <the second. laughs> I've, taken, I've taken you off on a tangent. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I'm forgetting exactly what my second question was, I'm afraid. So maybe we'll just have to move on. Um, but, uh, you know, another question I wanted to ask that some of your comments raised has to do with, you know, public health and the public health resp- response and the capacity for response. I mean, it wasn't so long ago when I remember reading a sort of famous book by a guy named Paul Kennedy uh, in which he described Africa as the third world's third world. In other words, you know, the deepest, poorest part of the world, essentially. Uh, but that's changed a lot in in the intervening years. I mean, I think that book came out, you know, the better part of 30 years ago now. Uh, and things have changed. And, and of course, there's variation. So I wonder, you know, how you would characterize the public health capacity to respond to uh, a crisis like this and, you know, how much it's helped to reduce the mortality and to, you know, keep people from getting sick? Sure. So I think um, your point is valid. I mean, you know, you can't compare member state to member state. Everybody's so different. Um, But I think one thing that was really striking was looking at what was happening in South Africa during their second wave. And, um, you know, they were not able to, to maintain um, you know, adequate care in hospitals and the hospitals were overwhelmed. And, and, you know, then as that kind of transition into many of the member states around them were starting to then experience their second waves um, and likely um, due to, to the variant that was, that was first reported there, um, you know, spilling over into these other countries, um, you, you just kept hearing reports of lack of, of oxygen, medical oxygen, lack of beds, um, hospitals just overwhelmed. And I think that's one of the difficulties that we've had with kind of seeing what the situation and, and trying to get that early warning and awareness of what's happening in member states. We're using a lot of indicators um, like cases, incidents, death rates. Uh, but one of the things that we really haven't been able to adequately assess is what's going on in the hospitals. And there's just not a good indicator that's being um, captured and reported on a routine basis to be able to see that. And currently, right now, we're developing some alert level guidance that member states could could hopefully use. And actually, this is one of the things that's really impressive about South Africa is they do have an alert system, an internal alert system. Um, and they monitor several indicators and some of them, uh, you know, are incidents and uh, testing capacity, um, but they're also able to kind of monitor these hospital bed capacity. And they use that in a way to see kind of like, you know, if the cases are rising, you know, there could be an issue. All right, let's start looking at the public health and social measures we need to put in place to, to, to decrease transmission and to um, try to, you know, dampen the wave. And I, I know that you know, that a lot of countries don't have that capacity in place and they don't have systems like that in place. And so this is something that we're trying to encourage that other countries get kind of these early warning and early alert systems in, in place. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> um, not every country has that. Um, and so, you know, we're trying our best to, to really understand what's happening with the member states and to be able to help and respond and work with partners 
um, to, to make sure that the supplies and everything are, are there. But there's also sometimes that lack of visibility and not really knowing. Um, so I think that's one of the things um, that could be definitely improved uh, to help the overall capacity um, and the response to, to improve things as well. Right. So I think the question that we both seem to have forgotten <laughs> had, to, <laughs> had to do with, um, you know, putting the African situation in the context of or in comparison with, you know, what's going on, for example, in India, but also in, for example, Latin America, where things are going badly. Um, you know, it may be that Africa's caught up or many of the countries are caught up in a second and perhaps even a third wave. Um, but it's, I think, you know, uh, rather considerably, you know, lower in terms of per capita mortality and that sort of thing. So if you could, uh, you know, sort of put Africa in the context of the larger world picture, I think that would be helpful. Sure. Um, so I think some of the points I brought up with regard to testing capacity, um, you know, is really, you know, inhibiting our ability to understand what the true burden is within the member states. Um, so that's something that Africa CDC has really been trying to encourage member states to do more rapid antigen testing to identify all of the cases. Because one of the things the paper actually pointed out is during these peak periods, uh, you know, where the incidence is really high, um, the testing capacity was very low. It was not able to keep up. And so, you know, as these subsequent waves are, are coming, there's going to need to be a way to, you know, keep an appropriate testing strategy to understand what's, what's happening. So, you know, if they're not able, if countries are not able to, um, you know, keep, uh, you know, up with their existing PCR capacity, what are other testing um, or other testing strategies they could use to, to help them identify cases. I think that's one, because you need to identify cases to be able to say, okay, you know, you need to isolate to prevent further transmission. So that's, that's part of it. Um, but I, I think another thing that was really interesting from these opinion poll results were that a number of um, people said that they, they just didn't go and access healthcare anymore. So they weren't going in um, and accessing the health system, even if they were sick, because they were afraid they could potentially get COVID from the health facilities. So there's that fear that um, people are staying home, even when they have severe um, illness and they could be dying at home. Um, and so I think that's something that we're just not being able to pick up. Um, so excess mortality surveillance could potentially shed some light on that. And there's a couple of countries that are doing that. Uh, South Africa is currently doing an excess mortality survey as well as Uganda. I think another thing um, with regard to the reporting piece is, you know, doing seroprevalence surveys. So, um, you know, there's about 10 countries uh, that are currently or, or have uh, done some seroprevalence surveys. So there's some results that are coming out from that. And I think that would be another way to also estimate what maybe the true burden is on the continent, because I just don't think that the numbers we're seeing now really represent what's happening. So I guess this brings us in some, in some sense to the uh, matter of the vaccines and the vaccine rollout. I mean, there's been some uh, commentary in the, in the press that I've seen that suggests that, you know, it hasn't been going so well. There's a certain amount of vaccine hesitancy. 
the blood clotting episodes with AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, you know, scared people there as it did scare people here. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of sort of, uh, resistance to science, I guess, and sort of failure perhaps to educate people as effectively as might've been done. So I wonder if you could comment on the, you know, the vaccine rollout, which, you know, many of these things could have been said about the United States and, and indeed of Europe. Um, so, you know, how does it look in Africa? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, all the points you raised are also, you know, concerns on the continent, um, which is why the risk communication and, and vaccine-related messaging is so important. Um, there have been a couple of studies that have been done across the continent. So there was one that Africa CDC did on vaccine perceptions, um, as well as the PERC opinion polls also did also ask about vaccine perceptions and um, vaccine acceptance. And the results from those actually showed fairly high acceptance rates. So about 80% for the Africa CDC survey and about 67% for the PERC opinion polls. Um, so, so maybe there's high acceptance, but absolutely there, you know, there was a lot of concern um, that surrounded the adverse events that were being reported from some of the vaccines. And that's something that Africa CDC continues, continues to monitor um, and we're definitely closely monitoring the situation that was happening in Europe. Um, we, we do also encourage, because of this, we're encouraging that member states, you know, really increase their monitoring and reporting of adverse events following immunization. Um, because, you know, as this is, is rolling out, there may be new information that we need to take note of to change recommendations. Um, but to date, um, Africa CDC has released a couple of statements regarding the use of the AstraZeneca and the J&J &J vaccines, um, which can be found on, on our website. Um, and currently we find that the benefits um, really do outweigh the risks for these, these vaccines. Um, I think probably one of the biggest challenges, and, and I'm sure we'll go into this a bit more in detail, but one of the biggest challenges that the continent is currently facing is the ability to procure the vaccine on the continent um, and the ability to meet the continental coverage goals, right? So um, those are set to try to meet 35% coverage by the end of 2021 and about 60% coverage by the end of 2022. And that's why Africa CDC and the AU are really trying to help increase the vaccines that are made available to member states through a couple of different mechanisms. Um, there's one that's called AVAT, which is the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team. And I'm sure you're aware of, of the COVAX mechanism that WHO is, is supporting. Yes. I mean, indeed, this was going to be my next question. Yeah. Terms, uh, how much vaccine is available? Uh, how much can people get, you know, whether they're right. resistant to it or not, how much is available. And, and you know, you mentioned COVAX, and I wasn't familiar with the AVAT uh, initiative. But, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of questions about vaccine diplomacy, right, that the Chinese and the Russians have fairly effective vaccines, and they're, you know, distributing them to places that they want to favor politically. And you can certainly imagine China, uh, given its extensive kind of uh, involvement in Africa these days, that they might be, you know, involved in this game as well. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how much vaccine is there? Where is it coming from? Uh, you know, would would 
in your view, would the uh, sort of lifting the waving of a patent, you know, make a difference in terms of, you know, uh, accessibility of vaccines in Africa and elsewhere? Sure. So, um, so currently, um, and this was taken on the 10th of May, so about approximately 24 point million doses have been administered. Um, and that only corresponds to a coverage rate of like about 1.5% at the continental level. Um, and if you take into consideration the need to, to take two doses, that's actually less than and uh, <laughs> that's about 0.4% of the population that has received full vaccine um, coverage. So not a lot um, has been administered and there's definitely a need to, to ramp up. Um, currently, the majority of the vaccine that's been distributed across the continent has been AstraZeneca and it's been through the, the COVAX mechanism. Um, but currently the, the outbreak in in India, the manufacturing issues have really limited um, the ability to get more of that vaccine to the continent. Um, so this is one of the reasons why Africa, CDC, and the AU were looking at potentially attaining supplies of the J&J &J vaccine for member states to relieve this current demand and, and try to help meet um, the demand on the continent. Um, some countries, yes, are using the Sputnik V vaccine, about six countries. Um, and with regard to Sinopharm, about 20 countries are currently using that. And then there's a second one, Sinovac, which two countries are, are using. Um, and all of this information is on um, the Africa CDC dashboard that we have. So I welcome your, um, your folks to, to check that out um, and, and learn more about it as it changes. And I don't know how this is going to evolve. I think this is all going to be something that we'll, we'll be watching intently and, and trying to really ensure that we're, we're meeting the needs across the continent. Um, I think one other thing to maybe mention, um, and you mentioned the, the whole thing about the relaxation of, of the patents. Um, so again, to try to meet these, these goals, we can't just do it by supplying vaccine from outside of the continent. There really is a need to build up vaccine manufacturing on the continent as well. Um, so with regard to that vaccine waiver, the Africa CDC and the AU are very supportive of that. Um, and the Africa CDC are also looking at ways of increasing manufacturing on the continent. Um, this was noted in a recent Nature commentary. I don't know if you happen to see, but, but last month, um, a number of African leaders came together and pledged to really increase um, that the share of vaccines that are manufactured on the African continent um, from 1% to 60% by 2040. Um, and this really includes the need to build factories and increase the researching and development capacity across the continent. And so something like a, a waiver for patents would definitely help with, with that need. Well, I mean, this is obviously an important issue for Africa, but it's a, an important issue for the world as a whole. That is to say, uh, you know, many people have made the point that, you know, until the whole world is vaccinated, this isn't really going to be over. Now, the whole world is never going to get vaccinated. 
for you know a variety of reasons, but um, you know one of the most obvious reasons in the African case is you know ability to pay. The fact that the richer countries of the world, you know, uh, sort of got their hands on these uh, on these vaccines early on and made them available to me, you know, and other Americans and the people in their own countries. But um, you know, given the interconnectedness of the world today which is, of course, in a way what made this a pandemic in the first place, um, you know, there has to be a plan to, uh, you know, essentially get everybody vaccinated. Everybody who is at all willing, uh, you know, has to get vaccinated if this is going to become simply an, an endemic kind of problem rather than uh, the epidemic and pandemic that it is now. So how do you see that developing? I mean, I know this kind of goes beyond your your remit uh, of Africa itself, but, uh, you know, it's obviously the, an issue that you must have a perspective on from your perch in Addis Ababa. Sure. And and also, I mean, I think, you know, USCDC actually just released, uh, released um, some new guidance uh, with regard to, um, you know, masking for fully vaccinated folks. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a luxury um, that the U.S. is currently able to experience because of the coverage rates um, that, that many other countries or regions have are not able to. Um, so I think, you know, we'll just we're trying our, our best to make sure that we advocate for this. But I think one of the things that many African leaders note is is the need to have the ability to take care of of the continent and really have the resources available to do that um, so that this kind of situation is not faced again in future. Um, And I think that's, you know, right now, as we're looking at additional variants being identified um, that could potentially escape uh, the existing vaccines that we have, um, you know, right now, the recommendations that are really being made is that we, we do need to continue monitoring um, for, for COVID. We need to improve our testing capacity. We need to renew um, member states, you know, efforts in strengthening um, these public health and social measures and getting folks across the continent to really adhere to those, um, especially while these, these campaigns, these vaccine campaigns are trying to to make their way through and, and potentially you know facing a number of, of problems, but um, you know these are all going to be important measures that we know are effective until we can get reach a majority um, of coverage uh, to try to prevent future variants from from emerging. So I think that's that's kind of the best thing that we can do at the moment um, until additional capacity. Is is brought onto the continent, um, or additional vaccines are available. Right. So it's all about global public health, I guess, in a certain sense. <laughs> so, yeah. but that leads that leads me to a question, which is that you know, until this all happened, you know, starting a little more than a year ago, uh, I was not aware that there was an uh, organization on the African continent called the Africa CDC, and I'm assuming that it's not coincidental that it has the name that it has uh, and that that somehow had something to do with American, you know, involvement. Now I could be wrong about that, but um, yeah, I also learned in the course of all this uh, that the CDC in the United States 
unlike most, you know, government, major government bureaucracies, is not located in Washington. It's located in Atlanta. Why is it located in Atlanta? Because when it was founded in 1946, it was at the epicenter of the malaria problem in the United States. And it was seen as, you know, more sensible to have it located there. So of course, nobody in the United States remembers that we had a malaria problem in, you know, my mother's lifetime uh, and, and nearly in my own for that matter. Um, but in any case, the, the real point is that, you know, it seems that there are CDCs in other parts of the world as well. And I'm sort of curious if you know, and maybe this is not a question I should be asking you really, but, you know, whether you know, like how that happened, uh, because it clearly has, you know, it seems to have some, uh, uh, you know, it seems to have been an initiative that was governed by the idea that this, you know, that public health needs to be a kind of global uh, phenomenon, something that, you know, we do in a coordinated fashion and that is not going to work otherwise as the current situation, you know, makes clear. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny, a lot of people ask about the Africa CDC and they're like, oh, is this similar to US CDC and is this affiliated with US CDC? And I compare it to the European CDC, um, which is also another regional body, um, which is a public health agency that was put in place by the European member states. And that's the same thing that's happened on the continent of Africa. Um, Africa CDC is a technical agency of the African Union that was put in place by the, the African member states um, and, you know, really was put in place to, to help support uh, National Public Health Institutes, which is another word for a CDC. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so like a Ministry of Health or a National Public Health Institute, um, that, that's kind of the primary audience um, that Africa CDC really um, tries to help support in, in coordinating public health efforts and responding to um, public health needs across the continent. Um, if that hopefully helps <laughs> answer your question. Yes, that's exactly what I had in mind about, you know, the CDC question. It's an interesting, you know, step towards trying to strengthen, you know, regional uh, public health uh, capacities, but also to reflect a kind of global international uh, coordination that really needs to take place. But in any case, thank you so much. This has been very illuminating and very interesting. And thanks for giving us a, an insight into what's going on in uh, in Africa, I want to thank Stephanie Salyer for sharing her insights about the course of the coronavirus pandemic in Africa. Uh, remember to subscribe. <clears throat> excuse me. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks so much, Stephanie Sawyer.